Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. Today's story occurred in the year 1946, but what else happened that year? Well, on the 4th of January, Theodore Church is hanged at Her Majesty's Prison in Pentonville by Albert Pierpoint, the only British soldier executed for treachery committed during World War II, and the last person to be executed in Britain for an offence other than murder. On July the 25th, in the first underwater test of the atomic bomb, the surplus USS Saratoga is sunk near Bikini Atoll in the Pacific Ocean, when the United States detonates the Baker device during Operation Crossroads. Also on the 25th of July, at Club 500 in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis stage their first show as a comedy team. And another thing on the 25th of July, in the last mass lynching in the United States, a mob of white men shoot and kill two African-American couples near Moore's Ford Bridge in Georgia. The 1st of September in 1946 saw the Turin Grand Prix, the first official Formula One Grand Prix, and it's held in Italy. The 1st of October saw the English premiere of J.B. Priestley's drama Uninspector Calls at the New Theatre London starring Rolf Richardson. On the 7th of October, the BBC Light programme transmits the first episode of the daily radio magazine programme, Women's Hour, which was initially presented by Alan Ivermey. This show is still running, more than 70 years later. The BBC also started the daily adventure serial, Dick Barton, Special Agent. October the 16th, the remaining 10 Nazi war criminals sentenced to death at the Nuremberg Trials are executed by hanging in a gymnasium in the Palace of Justice, Nuremberg. And lastly, on December 31st, US President Harry S. Truman delivers Proclamation 2714, which officially ends hostilities in World War II. But today's tale happened on the 29th of May. 1946. More than 70 years ago, the manager of a Bristol cinema was gunned down while those of the picture house continued, unaware, watching a movie. Word of the Week This week, it's my honour to give you the movie-related term... Best Boy. 
which is the title I've seen in many end credits. A best boy is a crew member who serves as the chief assistant to either a gaffer or key grip. When the best boy works with the gaffer, the head electrician and chief lighting technician, they are the best boy electric. When they're second to a key grip, which is the head of the grip crew, they are the best boy grip. The killer of Robert Nelson Parrington Jackson, aged just 33, has never been brought to justice in what is Bristol's oldest cold case still being investigated. This happened in the Odeon Cinema on Union Street, which was one of Bristol's biggest and most impressive cinemas for many years before the days of the multiplex. The Odeon is still there, but smaller than it was in 1946. It had opened in 1938, and its single auditorium could seat almost 2,000 people. Shortly before the shooting, Jackson had put the takings from two shows into the box office safe. In total, this was about £800, which was a massive sum in 1946. Mr Jackson, who lived with his wife and four-year-old son at Zetland Road, was appointed manager of the Odeon in March 1940, but quite soon after left to spend six years with the Royal Navy in World War II. He'd only started back at the Odeon seven weeks before his death. After Jackson had been shot and his body discovered, it was said that, in true showman-like fashion, the show went on. Except for a notice that flashed onto the screen to appeal for a doctor, patrons watching a presentation of The Light That Failed, a film about a battle on the frontiers of Britain's Victorian Empire, had no idea of the drama which happened in another part of the building. It was, and still is, one of Bristol's most sensational murders. Once the alarm was raised, detectives rushed over from Bridewell Police Station nearby and interviewed all the staff of the cinema after it closed. Mr Jackson's wife was at his bedside with police on hand when he died at Bristol Royal Infirmary at 3.35am. It's understood that he was unable to describe what had happened. In fact, he never regained consciousness. Ironically, the film playing at the moment when the dashing, dinner-jacketed manager, who had acted in movies, driven across America by car in just five days, and worked as a radio announcer was shot, was in fact a thriller. Six shots rang out. Five of them were on the soundtrack of the Light That Failed film. The sixth was for real. 48 hours later, the police were no wiser as the Evening Post revealed. While a watch was being maintained at Temple Meads, other West Country stations, Avonmouth and other docks, police officers were taking statement after statement. All likely places, including Blitz Ruins, have been combed for the weapon, but so far without result. There is a strong reason to believe it was a 45 service revolver. Police have two theories. Several lines of inquiry are being pursued following a day of methodical search, conferences, interviews, and attempts to reconstruct the shooting with officers impersonating Mr. Jackson and his assailant. When questioned by detectives, a doorman at the cinema, Charles Jackson, 
who was on duty on the night of the 29th of May, said that he saw Robert Jackson several times during the evening. He told the detectives, I saw him going upstairs about 6.30. He had been to the cash desk. He was going to his office, which is on the first floor. A minute or two afterwards, someone came to me with some lost property, which he had to pick up in the stalls. I took it upstairs, intending to give it to Mr. Jackson. His door was shut, and I waited because I thought he would be checking the money and putting it away. Shortly after, he came out, and I handed the purse to him. He went back into the office, and I went down to the forum. A few minutes after, I heard a bang, and I immediately went up to the balcony to make inquiries into the cause of the bang. I did not go into the office, but walked round the balcony. Shortly after, I went for the police. He said he didn't want to actually go into the office, as he assumed the manager was counting the takings and wouldn't want to be disturbed, as was his way. The cafe supervisor at the Odeon Cinema, Mary Alcock, said that she too was there and described what happened at about 6.45 that evening. I was in the balcony cafe, which is on the same floor as Mr Jackson's office. I heard a bang and asked the doorman what had caused it. I then went back into the cafe and the next thing a woman called me from the kitchen. She told me to go and see if Mr Jackson was ready for his tea. I went and found the door shut. I knocked and got no answer. I knocked again and then opened the door. During the inquest, the coroner asked her what she saw and she said, I found Mr Jackson lying just inside the door on his right side. When she was asked whether he had been wounded in the head, she said, Yes, sir. And when the coroner asked her whether he spoke, she replied, No, sir. She went on to say that that was when she ran back and told the manageress. (laughs) Word on the street. And this week, let's take a wander down Shadwell Road in BS7, named after the Shadwell family, who were lords of the manor of Horfield. There is a plaque to John Shadwell and his wife in Horfield Church, and when he died in 1849, the lands passed to the Bishop of Gloucester and Bristol. Until that time, it had been farmed by the Shadwell family since the days of Henry VIII. After the post-mortem, the pathologist said that the cause of death for Jackson was cerebral laceration following the passage of a bullet through his skull. It was reported that at least two important pieces of information were expected to come from the post-mortem. First, the distance from which the fatal shot was fired, and secondly, the angle of entry that the bullet was fired from. And in answer to those two questions, The pathologist said, The course of the bullet was from above downwards, from left to right, and from behind forward. There was no burning on the face, no blackening, only two particles of burnt powder. The pathologist also confirmed that he believed that the gun used was a heavy calibre weapon. Two shots had been fired that night. One had missed. They both came from a US Army issue Colt 45 automatic pistol. And for a time, it was thought to be the same gun used in the murder of a 12-year-old girl in South Wales. 
The gun was later found in a static water tank, one of the many that had been set up during the war to provide water for the firefighters during the Blitz. Unfortunately, this discovery was of no help. The police said that they had reports of sightings of two people who were seen in the balcony lounge area of the cinema, one being described as the man with the pursed lips, who was seen reading a newspaper near the cinema office on the day before the murder, Tuesday, and the other, a dishevelled man, who was seen running out of the gallery stairs minutes after the shooting on the Wednesday night. They put forward an appeal for the two men, but had no response. The police later received a detailed description of the man that was seen in the lounge on the Tuesday afternoon between 5.30 and 6pm from an usherette that he spoke to and who told her that he was waiting for someone. The usherette said that he had been between 30 and 35 years of age, about 5 foot 7 inches tall, with a medium build, with what was believed to be dark hair, a longish face, a ruddy complexion and clean shaven. She said that he was wearing a dark suit, which she believed was navy blue, which was well-worn and shiny in places, with a white collar and a dark-coloured tie. She said that she believed that he was hatless and had been carrying an old Macintosh coat. The police said that they thought that the murderer had escaped from the manager's office over girders beneath the cinema balcony, and took dust and cobweb samples from them for examination. In a search for the murderer, the police inspected the registers at scores of hotels in Bristol and checked up on a number of people that had arrived in the city on the Tuesday and the Wednesday. Police worked all night in the office where the shooting took place, and passers-by could occasionally see the figures of CID men who, with fingerprint experts and photographers, were still scrutinising every inch of the room for possible clues. The possibility of suicide had been ruled out, leaving the theories of 1. Mr Jackson returned to his office to surprise an intruder intent on robbery, who shot his way out. Mr Jackson had taken the takings from the box office to a safe in his private office. And theory number 2, Mr Jackson being shot in a private quarrel with an intruder as no money had been taken and the key to the safe was found in the dying man's pocket. Many, many theories were thrown around in the years that followed. The most common theory was that the rather dashing and glamorous young man's love life had a part to play. Maybe a jealous lover or boyfriend of an usherette who had become pregnant about that time were responsible. But there was no evidence that he was even having an affair. In the mid-1970s, a man rang the Bristol Post, saying that he believed the manager may have been killed because he was... Jacko was a sort of bloke who would always greet his usherettes, waitresses and kiosk girls with a hug or a kiss. I believe it led to one of their boyfriends becoming jealous. Something happened to one of the girls in the kiosk, and although Jacko had nothing to do with it, he apparently got the blame. The police never took this theory seriously. In 1993, a man named Jeff Fisher walked into a police station in Cardiff, saying that his father 
was the killer. His father, Billy Fisher, known as The Fish, had been a petty crook in the 1940s, along with his friend, Dukey Leonard. They had travelled to Bristol from South Wales that day in 1946, with the intention of robbing the cinema. They had panicked, he said, when the manager walked into his office when they were trying to open the safe, and The Fish shot him. This crime was confessed to the son on his deathbed in 1989. Jeff Fisher told the police that he believed that his father may have murdered more than once. Officially though, this is still a cold case. Are you tired of seeing the latest social media trends and fearing the worst? Does the daily news bring you down? Are you looking for something new and fun to listen to? Well, well that's, that's where, where we, we come, come in. in. Hi. Hi. It's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host The Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we present a fictional story utilizing the hottest happenings in the world and bring it straight to your earbuds. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just go to anchor.fm slash evertrendingpod and subscribe today. Back in the day facts. So let's start with the 11th of June 2019, when the New York Times reveals an estimated 500,000 song titles, including masters of Chuck Berry, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, were lost in a 2008 warehouse fire on the Universal Backlot in Los Angeles. On the 12th of June 1665, New Amsterdam legally becomes an English colony and renamed New York after the English Duke of York. On the 12th of June 1954, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock is originally. The 14th of June 1381 saw Richard II in England meeting leaders of the Peasants' Revolt on Blackheath. The Tower of London is stormed by rebels who enter without resistance. This was part of the first poll tax riot which rocked England. It was called the Peasants' Revolt or the Great Uprising. On the 15th of June 1878, the world's first moving pictures were caught on camera, using 12 cameras, each taking one picture. This was done to see if all four of a horse's hooves leave the ground at the same time. Edward Murbridge arranged the 12 cameras in a row to photograph a racehorse in motion. He later copied the photos onto a rotating disc and invented a device to make it look to the viewer as if the horse was moving. And lastly, on the 16th of June, 1779, Spain declares war on Great Britain in support of France and the USA. This starts the Great Siege of Gibraltar, which was an unsuccessful attempt by Spain and France to capture Gibraltar from the British. This was the largest action fought during the war in terms of numbers, 
particularly the grand assault of 18th of September 1782. And at three years and seven months, it's the longest siege endured by the British armed forces. I'm afraid that means it's the end of the show this week. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed researching it. And by sheer coincidence, on a recent graveyard tour organised by Arnas Vale, the gravestone of the victim, Robert Nelson Parrington Jackson, was highlighted. And to be honest, where it was situated, I would have never have found it myself. So I was really pleased to be able to pay my respects to his memory. Now before I go, it's time to tell you the real star. So, were... Joe Wilson and Sam Roberts from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as two friends of mine, Tony Allen and Griff. Thank you, one and all. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke Radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>